Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer. I wonder if some writers, when they are writing a novel, I wonder if they knew they were creating magic. Uh, could they have known as they plotted and, and wrote that their novel would entertain and even change the lives of many? I doubt it. But here are some who did. Here are the top 10 best-selling novels of the last 10 years, according to Publishers Weekly. The best-selling novel in the last decade is Fifty Shades of Grey by E.L. James, which has sold 15.2 million copies. Number two is The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins at 8.2 million copies. Number three is Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn, 8.1 million copies. Number four, The Fault in Our Stars by John Green, 8.5 million copies. Number five, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo by Stieg Larsson at 7.9 million copies. Number six, Divergent by Veronica Roth at 6.6 million copies. Number seven, The Help by Catherine Stockett at 6.5 million. Number eight, Me Before You by Jojo Moyes at 6.3 million copies. Number nine, The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak at 6 million copies. And number 10, The Martian by Andy Weir at 5.7 million copies sold. These writers were creating magic. I wonder if they knew. I don't think so. Maybe they did. I'd like to talk about our first draft, first draft of our novel or a short story. Ernest Hemingway said, the first draft of anything is, and here we can add his expletive, William Faulkner is said to have said, write your first novel and then throw it out. It's often attributed to Faulkner. Uh, it's not sure whether he actually said it, but it's, uh, it's his thoughts on it, and it's spread around as a quote from him, throw it out. Uh, in an interview, Ernest Hemingway is said uh, to have said, the first draft of a novel is always terrible no matter how good a writer you are. There's no definite indication he said it, but it fits with his thoughts on writing uh, found elsewhere. Are these writers correct? Throw out our first draft, our, our, that our first draft is terrible? This is nonsense. It's nonsense on stilts. Charles Dickens' first novel was The Pickwick Papers, also known as The Posthumous Papers of the Pickwick Club. It was published in monthly installments from March of 1836 until November 1837. The novel made Dickens a household name and is considered one of the funniest ever written and today is, is part of a, uh, our Western literary canon. It was his first novel. Tom Clancy's first novel was The Hunt for Red October, which was published in 1984. The Hobbit was J.R.R. Tolkien's first novel. I once read that his writing about the Middle Earth will be the only 20th century novel studied in 300 years. 
Delia Owens' first novel was Where the Crawdads Sing. Zadie Smith's was White Teeth. Donna Tartt's first novel was The Secret History. Arthur Conan Doyle's first novel was A Study in Scarlet, where he introduced Sherlock Holmes. We could go on and on. First novels are sometimes masterpieces. Sometimes they become bestsellers, and and sometimes they become cultural milestones. I'm not saying our first novel might not need work. They might be considered drafts that need work. Uh, Most novels, whether first novels or tenth novels, whether by unknown writers or famous writers, need editing after they, they are finished. Uh, editing and polishing, but the result of a first novel can be a a splendid story, maybe one that will endure. And sometimes first drafts don't need much work, as they are already uh, splendid. Toss out our first novel. Our first novel is terrible. Well, maybe it is, but also maybe it isn't. Maybe it is in fact, a wonderful story, even a masterpiece. This notion that all first novels are, are terrible and should be sh- thrown out is nonsense on stilts. I would like to offer the idea that not all words are equal. Uh, this is the same as saying not all dogs are equal. I'm not sure. Sh- Sure, it's true about dogs. They seem about equal to me. But I'd like to explore that notion regarding words. Some words are strong and some are weak. Uh, The technique here for us writers is to use the strong word. We writers should avoid vanilla words. We should avoid tepidity. We should keep our readers engaged with punchy and surprising words. William Zinzer, in his best-selling On Writing Well, says, quote, Weak words sap the strength of your writing. That's William Zinzer. So what's a weak word? It's a word we hear all the time, and it sounds as if it was thrown into a blender and mixed around and losing distinctiveness and flavor and, and importantly, losing its surprise and its punch. The English language has between 180,000 words and 600,000 words, depending on how they are counted. And the Oxford English Dictionary contains over 15,000 adjectives alone. I can't talk about even the tiniest percentage of them, but I'll give some examples, hoping we can get the gist of the difference between a strong word and a weak word. How about strong words that describe a character's personality? Here's what I mean. Compare these two sentences. He was young and inexperienced. Compare that with he was callow. Isn't callow a nice word? It means lacking adult sophistication. It's a terrific word. It's unexpected. It's unusual. And it it has its own percussive, callow, percussiveness. Uh, Compare these two sentences. She was unhappy and pessimistic, as opposed to her mood was bleak. Isn't bleak a great word? Uh, Compare he was unpleasant and rude with he was nasty. Nasty is a powerful and 
unexpected word. Here's a terrible sentence. The murderer, the murderer had mental problems. How about the murderer was deranged or a lunatic or a madman? All of these words are stronger than the phrase mental problems. Here's a fairly dull sentence. She was manipulative. Well, manipulative isn't a bad word, but how about she was conniving? Conniving is a great word. It's unexpected, sort of a surprise. How about compare these? He lacked courage with he was craven. Compare these. He was extremely unlikable. Talk about a weak phrase. How about he was loathsome? Now, loathsome's a great word. Here's a weak word, unpleasant. Let's uh, add an intensifier. He was really unpleasant. That is a weak phrase. How about he was vile? It's short and punchy and uncommon. What a great word. We can find powerful words to describe our characters' bodies, not just personality, but bodies. Her hair was dirty. Well, that's all right. But how about this? Her hair was greasy. Greasy here is unexpected. It's one of the great words in the language. It's uncommon. It's powerful. Dirty hair is dirty hair, but greasy hair is a powerful image. How about this sentence? She was tall and thin. Well, it's a good word describing our character, but those, those two words, tall and thin, are vanilla words. How about she was towering and gaunt? Those are two punchy words. Or lanky and gaunt. Or willowy. Isn't that a wonderful word? Willowy. Maybe she's portly. Maybe she's rotund. Maybe he's cave-chested. Or maybe he's spindly. Instead of her hair was black or she was a brunette, how about raven-haired? For her eyes. Instead of brown eyes, how about smoldering brown eyes or bedroom eyes or limpid eyes or soulful eyes? We can des describe the whole face. A miser's face. Isn't that wonderful? I don't know where I stole that from, but it's a terrific phrase. A moonlight face. A pitted face. A blank face. A blunt face. As face as bright as paint. Noses are hard to describe because a lot of the time a nose is a nose, just like a rose is a rose. How about a flippant nose? A scimitar nose? A gangster's flat nose, equine nostrils, or, or a shapeless nose. Uh, for a jaw, instead of a big jaw, how about an uncompromising jaw, or an aggressive jaw, an aggressive jaw, a weak jaw, or a knuckled jaw? We can also find strong words to describe the setting. The room was dirty and run down. That's not too bad, but how about the room was squalid or grimy or ramshackle? These are powerful and unexpected words. The forest was thick and green. Well, that's not too bad, but how about the forest was lush? Lush is an unusual, lovely word.
or the forest could be sprawling or tranquil or tranquil or even sinister, a sinister forest. For a snow-covered mountain, saying it's white is fine, but it's predictable. How about shimmering? The mountain was shimmering. Or the alabaster mountain. Isn't that pretty? The brilliant mountain, brilliant in the sunshine. The glistening mountain. The sparkling mountain. All of these describe a snow-covered mountain. But these words are unexpected, and they bring a nice image to the reader. How about for an ocean or a lake or a sea? We could write that the sea had large waves or that it was rough. But these are common words. How about a, a lumpy sea or a sloping mass of water? I think that's right from Patrick O'Brien's wonderful novels. Uh, a breaking crest of waves. Hissing combers. I'm sure that's Patrick O'Brien. Isn't that a lovely phrase? Hissing combers. The foaming tumult. A restless sea. The sea's troubled surface. All of these descriptions are unexpected by the reader, and so are punchy. For the sky and clouds, how about opalescent clouds? The smiling sky, isn't that lovely? The grainy light, the powdery light, watery sunshine, the slate sky, buttery light, the brassy sun. Uh, yes, these are adjectives, and we should try to avoid a lot of adjectives and adverbs, but once in a while, if we want to get across to the reader something powerfully and quickly, an adjective is just fine. And these words describing characters and uh, the settings are telling rather than showing, but here too, once in a while, telling is perfect, especially if we want to be quick and concise. Uh, my thought here is that we can make our sentences shine, and we can give great pleasure to the readers with our sentences. How? We can find words with punch. A word that is not too common, that is unexpected and memorable, and that gives our sentence energy. Such words are worth searching our minds and maybe our thesaurus as we write our stories. I received a nice message about chapter length. Could you perhaps create a podcast episode that goes into more detail about chapter length and how to know when a chapter is too long or too short and when to start a new one? That was a, an email from a listener. There's no one-size-fits-all answer to the question as the perfect chapter length varies depending on a number of things. But there are some guidelines. According to a study by Reedsy, the average chapter length in a novel is between 1,500 and 5,000 words. That's between 5 and 16 pages. That's a wide range. Chapter length can be influenced by the novel's genre. Historical novels and science fiction novels, which often involve building a world, sometimes have longer chapters. Horror and thrillers and detective novels might benefit from shorter chapters, which can lend a percussion to the story. But these are just general ideas. Uh, chapter length can be all over the place in all genres, short, medium, or long chapters. And 
chapter length can also depend on the author's style. Uh, some authors prefer shorter chapters and some longer chapters. James Patterson's chapters are often only 500 words or less. That's two pages. Uh, compare that to William Faulkner's 10,000-word chapter in Absalon, Absalon. That's about 33 pages for one chapter. Toni Morrison's chapters usually are between 3,000 and 5,000 words. That sounds about right to me. Uh, when thinking about our chapter length, we should uh, give some thought to whether our, uh, whether our story is fast-paced, such as James Patterson's stories. Uh, if they are, you might want to keep your chapters on the shorter side. Uh, snappy, tense stories often benefit from shorter chapters. Here are some other thoughts about chapter length. We probably should try to keep our chapters about the same length in the novel, roughly the same number of pages, uh, irrespective of whether that length is three or 15 pages. The reason is that our readers become accustomed to the chapter length, and they might think, I'll read one more chapter before I turn out the lights. Uh, she has learned from your novel that the average chapter, uh, she's learned the average chapter length, and she's timing herself. She'll read one more chapter. A chapter might have a number of scenes. So if you're shooting for 15-page chapters, the chapter might have one 15-page scene, or it might have a 2,000-word scene followed by a 3,000-word scene in the same chapter. Uh, the goal here is to make our chapters about the same length, give or take. I'm not sure this is the most important thing in the writing world, but it's worth thinking about. This email asks, uh, how do we know if our chapters are too long, and how do we know when to end it? Uh, when we finished a chapter, might we sense it's too long or has too many words, or uh, does it feel loose or s sloppy? Maybe that's the reason it feels too long. When should we start a new chapter? The chapter might feel too loose because the chapter contains elements the chapter can do without and should do without. Uh, mainly, does the chapter contain an unneeded setup or an unneeded wind down? I've mentioned this in an earlier episode, and because it's one of the most important writing techniques, let me talk about it again. I'll be brief. A chronology can be set out in a, a bullet point outline, A, B, C, and D. Those are the bullet points in our chapter. But a, but a scene isn't a chronology. A scene is the heart of the chronology. Our scene should be B and C. We should leave out A and D. For example, A, Joan is driving to the meeting. B, Joan gives the money to the blackmailer. C, the blackmailer demands more. D, Joan returns from the meeting to her house to tell her daughter about it. Uh, this is A, B, C, D. A is the setup. It isn't needed. It's driving. B and C are the heart of the scene. D is the wind down, and it is, isn't needed either. Uh, let me offer a, a longer chronology, an, an outline of a chapter in a, in a different novel. This outline begins too early and ends too late. Here it is. One, uh, 
Our protagonist, 14-year-old Janie, talks with her best friend Olivia about her date tonight, her first date. It's with Brett, who is 15. Neither knows what to expect on a date with Brett, who is a year older. He's a halfback on the high school football team. 2. Janie's mother cautions her about what can happen on a date with an older guy. Janie's father has met Brett's father and doesn't like him. 3. Janie's mother drives Janie to the movie theater to meet Brett. 4. Brett buys two tickets for them at the box office. 5. Almost immediately after the theater's lights go down, Brett puts his arm around Janie's shoulder. She's delighted. 6. But Brett's hand moves toward her chest. She tries to stop it, but he persists. 7. She jumps out of her seat, rushes to the lobby, and calls her mother for a ride home. 8. Janie is embarrassed about talking about this, but her mother insists, so Janie tells her mother what happened in the theater. 9. When the car pulls into the driveway, Janie jumps from the car, goes into the house, and up to her room. She texts Olivia with all the news. Where should the, that's a chronology, where should the scene, the heart of it, start? Probably at number four, when Brett buys the ticket and they enter the theater. All the stuff about Olivia and mom and dad prior to that is set up, and uh, in any event isn't much interesting. And where should the scene stop? Probably after number seven, where she jumps out of her seat and runs to the lobby. All of the ride home and the chat with mom which would just be a rehash of what had happened in the theater. Uh, going into the house and contacting her friend Olivia is the wind-down, and it isn't of much interest. So if you're thinking your chapter's too long and you'd like to uh, see where, I, where you should stop the chapter to go on to the next chapter, take a look at see if the ending can be cut out. See if it's a D. And look at the start of it, too. See if it's an A. Cut out A and D, and we should focus on B and C, the heart of the scene. I think the rule of commas might apply. If in doubt, leave it out. I received the nicest email from a listener. Actually, it's a riveting email a listener who just recently turned to writing, he was responding to my question about what got us interesting in writing. Here's his email. Hello, my name is Brian. I wanted to share what got me into writing with you. I always wanted to be a firefighter, and even though I have always loved writing, I never focused on perfecting my craft. That all changed two and a half years ago when I had a bad accident a couple of months after my 21st birthday. I was driving and a woman was distracted and she swerved from her lane, hitting me head on, and it crushed my body completely. In the first year, I had to have 30 surgeries and I currently have metal rods through both femurs as well as plates and screws all over. I was told that I wouldn't be a firefighter, and even almost three years later, I still need various surgeries as my right femur currently has a non-union fracture, so I need a bone graft done. 
I was unable to work for about a year and a half, and it destroyed me being told I will not be able to be a firefighter. Thankfully, I started writing again, and I fell in love with it. It's the feeling that no matter how bad things are, I can create my own world with my own story. Your podcast has helped me learn how to be a much better writer, and I hope to be published one day. Thank you so much for helping me, and you have helped me more than just my writing. You've helped me find a piece of happiness again. That was from Brian. What a rewarding message. Isn't it nice to hear what writing can do for us? It can lift us up, and it can put us on a new path. I've sent Brian a message, of course. I hope for the best for him. I I know all of us do. I've asked him to keep me posted as to his health and his writing progress. We've come to the end of this podcast. I'm sure glad you were along for it. If you'd like to send me a message, my address is Seattle at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.